Well, this morning we press on through the book of Daniel and come to Daniel chapter 9. <clears throat> and in this passage, Daniel, now Belshazzar having been overthrown and Darius uh, taking control, the Medes and the Persians now conquering the Babylonians, um, Daniel comes to a realization I'm no doubt something he has been contemplating and thinking about. This isn't just a, uh, oh, hey, wait a second, though, though maybe it was. Uh, but knowing the faithfulness of Daniel, his faithfulness to look back to Jerusalem and to be praying uh, to the Lord, the free and open communication between him and the Lord uh, via these visions, no doubt this has been on the mind of Daniel. But now that Belshazzar is defeated, the Babylonians are no more, and now the Medes and the Persians uh, have taken control, it, it hits Daniel that we are approaching the end of the time prophesied by Jeremiah. Daniel knows his prophets, and he knows what he's doing in Babylon. This is a, again, a, this is not just a, you know, a story in world history. This is something shocking, so much so that, you know, um, Nothing, he can say, nothing like this has happened ever before, what happened to Jerusalem. They say, well, wait a second, wait a second here. Uh, you know, uh, kingdoms have conquered kingdoms throughout history. Uh, this has happened all over the place. What are you talking about? But, but Daniel sees through his, his, uh, his eyes, of his glasses, if you will, of revelation, that what happened in Jerusalem is not just one city being conquered by a bigger kingdom. That... That's happened, you know, all throughout history. But this was the city of God. This was the temple of God where, where Yahweh himself, the one true God, dwelt in that temple. And, and it's been torn down and devastated. And the people that had received this covenant promise from God have been exiled from their land. Nothing, nothing like this has happened before. Daniel understands that. This this time in in uh, in Babylon has been a grievous time for the people of God as they have been put out of their homeland, but more than just their homeland, it's the place of their covenant relationship with God. Now remember, let me just let me just get us back here for a second to remember that when we read this story, we should read it as a historical moment, no doubt, but also it is a, if you will, a retelling of the big story of the Bible, right? We too, as mankind, were in relationship with God in the Garden of Eden. Very free and open relationship with the Lord. It's the place where God dwelt and the place where we dwelt. We dwelt with Him. We literally had Emmanuel, God with us. In Adam, uh, we were dwelling in the very presence of God, enjoying the benefits of God in a holy garden, if you will. But because of our sin, because of our rebellion, because of our mingling uh, and, and listening to the enemies of God uh, in Satan, we were cast out, kicked out of the garden and sent into a foreign place, a foreign city, made to wander the earth and deal with all the desolations of life uh, uh, outside of the garden. And so the, the story of Daniel and Israel is really a retelling. It's it's now happening again, on, in this in this way in the history of Israel. They like Adam dwelt within the land, 
in the holy presence of God, having open communion with God and fellowship with Him. But they too sinned, and as such, they were kicked out of the garden. And it's devastating. It's just that we're used to living out here in Babylon, you know, just like kind of like Mordecai and Esther, you know. You, 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 after a while, you get used to living in Babylon. It starts to kind of feel like home. You start to feel like you can make the best of it. But it's not home. And, and shame on us if, if unlike Daniel, we don't constantly have our faces turned back to Jerusalem. And here I don't mean literally, but I mean to the heavenly Jerusalem. Right? That, that new Jerusalem that John has in the book of Revelation that descends out of the sky. That's our home. Our home is in glory with God dwelling, dwelling in the immediate presence of God. That we should be longing for and our eyes should be turned to that all day with, in, in some sense with tears. Lord, Lord, may it be so. You know, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Because we can start to settle in here in Babylon, start to try to make the best of it, almost start to find ways to work the system and prosper here in Babylon. And then it starts to get a little cushy for us. So Daniel is a good model for us. Don't do that. You know, Daniel intentionally didn't eat the food. If we can go back to the beginning, we'll remember he didn't eat the food in the king's table because of that very reason. He knew right at the outset as a teenager, think about that, that it would be best if he did not settle in here in Babylon, but that he might keep himself longing for Jerusalem. Okay, well, now we come to this transition and Daniel, knowing Jeremiah, knowing the awful nature of what's going on here, and though he did seek to be faithful while he was in Babylon, serving Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar faithfully, nonetheless, he has been longing to get home. And now it hits him, hey, wait a second, Jeremiah said that it would be about 70 years, this exile, and hence it has been. So Daniel's an old man here but he realizes we're approaching that time. And though I have no doubt Daniel has been praying prayers of confession, we don't get a lot about the prayer life of Daniel, except that he's doing it, even when it was threatened. You'll remember uh, when he was going to be thrown to the lion's den, the, the guys tried to trap him um, during, during the reign here of Darius. So we're, that was in his third year. This is the first year, so that's coming. Uh, Daniel, no doubt, is a man of prayer. And here we get a glimpse into this actual prayer of Daniel as it hits him that now is the time. So our text this morning is divided into two segments. First, we have Daniel's prayer, and then we have, again, this divine visitation through Gabriel to kind of give him some insight as to what's going on and where he's at and what's happening. So first, we have Daniel's prayer, and we have read this almost twice in that we've gotten our prayer of confession, our corporate prayer of confession, was from this text and then read it all the way through. But verses 1 through 19 are Daniel's beautiful prayer, a prayer worth contemplating. I encourage you to go home and read it again. I encourage you not only in, to read it, but I encourage you to model your prayers after it. It's a beautiful prayer of confession that Daniel is not just praying for himself, though he is, but Daniel, like Moses, is praying this intercessory prayer on behalf of his people. I, I, I hear Moses here in some sense at, atop, you know, Mount Sinai, uh, uh, praying on behalf of his people, you know, that they not be consumed and destroyed, uh, because of the golden calf. You know, uh, Moses has to go before the Lord and fall on his face before him and essentially call upon the Lord to remember his covenant promises to them, uh, and, and, 
uh, and to free them. And the Lord does hear his prayer. So it is with Daniel here. Daniel falls on his face, uh, verse 3, Then I set my face toward the Lord to make requests by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. So Daniel's got the works going here as he turns to pray to the Lord. And his prayer is one that immediately honors and glorifies God. Right When we, we when you read this prayer, you notice a couple things, in my opinion. One, you notice that Daniel had a very active relationship with the Lord. He speaks to the Lord as to a friend, but not a, a friend, i.e., on, 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 uh, on the same level as him. But you could tell that Daniel has spent time with the Lord. This prayer. This does not seem like an impersonal prayer. This seems like a a, a friend coming to a friend, a son coming to his father. Uh, there's a, a deep relationship here and one of great reverence. Then I prayed to the Lord God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. Right? I mean, the, the, the immediate acknowledgement of the Lord is, Lord, you are so good. Not only you're great and awesome and holy. I mean, that, that you could understand just sort of that you just fall on your face before the Lord and, and you just acknowledge you're, you're so great and holy. And he does that. You're an awesome God, but you're an awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him. You are a God who is faithful and kind. Think, think about the way we begin our Lord's prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Yes, we hallow the name. Hallow means to make holy. We make holy in the name of God. We set it apart. We recognize that it is a transcendent and above us and pure, unapproachable, inscrutable. But at the same time, the one who is inscrutable in his holiness is our Father. And Daniel acknowledges that there's an intimacy here. Lord, you are the one who keeps his covenant and his mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. Daniel acknowledges that, right? This is that our, our being here is not a problem, you know, on your character. It's not a smudge on your character, Lord. You are merciful. You are gracious. You keep covenant with those who love you. And that's going to be important to remember. I mean, Daniel's, you've been in exile 70 years. You know, how long have we as human beings been in exile from God? A long time. And yet God is forbearing. He is with us. He has not abandoned us. Now, we're going to see that theme come back. Daniel, Daniel, this beautiful prayer, it, it praises God and then it confesses and then it cycles back where he, he can't help but continue to acknowledge the grace of our God. But immediately he turns to confession. We have sinned. There's no beating around the bush. Daniel acknowledges even after 70 years, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled by departing from your laws and your judgments, your precepts and your judgments. We have not heeded your servants, the prophets. You sent us prophets to warn us. Not only did we not keep the law, but when you sent the warnings, we ignored them. We did not heed your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your names to our kings and to our princes and to our fathers and to all the people of the land. 
Now here again, I think it's just a good chance for us to step back and remember the importance of confession. You know, it's, it's, it's something that I, I don't know. I don't, I can't, I can't speak for everybody. I just feel like within Protestantism, I say Protestantism, not, not to exclude Catholics or Eastern Orthodox. I mean, but they have a sacrament of confession, you know. So it's, it's woven into their, their religious life. Now, we know that from, for many, as in, in all faiths, right? It, it may not be handled the way it ought to be. It's done, you know, you're supposed to do it once a year within the Catholic Church. Um, for some, it's just you walk in, you say a few things, you get out of there, you know, forgiveness is, is declared to you and it just seems like rote stuff. I, I get that. I get that. Bad. <laughs> Shame on those who use it that way. But we don't have that. For us, we're kind of left to our own to confess our sins and just encouraged, do it. I don't know. It's a good time for you to ask yourself, how are you at confessing your sins before the Lord? Now, one of the things that's beautiful about our church and those within the Reformed tradition, those who have some kind of formal liturgy that links back to the, the past, is we have confession woven into our worship service. And I just want to take this opportunity to remind you of why and why it's so important. When we pray our corporate prayer of confession in the service, we together are acknowledging our sinfulness, the sinfulness of this congregation. And by the way, we are doing it as a kingdom of priests on behalf of the world. We're not just acknowledging that we are sinners, but we're acknowledging that we are sinners of a family of sinners. And then we have time of silent confession. Well, yes, as individuals within this body now, we also confess our particular sins. Obviously not all of them. I usually give you, what is it, 20 seconds of silence, right? It's, it's not meant to be the time now that you deal with all the sins of your week, but it's a token. It's, it's the ones that are most pressing. It's, it's the ones that really are, are, are lingering on our minds that we might confess them to the Lord. Now, the point of having this within our liturgy, a liturgy is just the, the familiar habits of our, the order of our worship is to build into us week after week after week the habit of confession. That as the people of God, it is good and right that we acknowledge that we are sinners. If we fail in this, if we fail in the habit of confessing, we will fail in the habit of worship because what are we worshiping God for? We, we, we will not have an understanding. We'll have a small understanding, let's put it that way, of our Savior. Jesus will shrink if, you, if your appreciation for your sin shrinks, your appreciation for your Savior shrinks. If I don't have much sin to be delivered from, then I don't need much of a Savior. And therefore, it's not a morbid thing to confess week after week after week, but a good thing, for it reminds us of our need for a Savior. It reminds us of how amazing the grace is that has been given to us. It's a reminder of how much we need Jesus. It's a reminder of how great and awesome our God is who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him. You and I don't deserve that love. And if we're not careful, 
We can begin to think, especially in an age like ours, an age which overemphasizes tolerance and acceptance and everybody has to be loved and nobody can be challenged, nobody can be convicted of anything, nobody can ever be declared wrong or guilty. We just have to love, we have to accept, we have to embrace every possible thing. Well, then we start to think, well, why wouldn't God accept me? Doesn't he have to? Everybody has to accept me. Our age is very, it's a very dangerous age for this. Will you just assume acceptance? But we ought not assume, assume acceptance. And to do that, to get ourselves grounded and stabilized, we must confess our sin. And Daniel gives us the model for it. He does this, again, in verse 7 by, you'll see, the confession and then linking back to the character of God, linking back to the character of God. It's, it's like his anchor point. Oh, Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of face. Right? The problem here is not you, which, again, I, we were just, I was, in, uh, I was in Philadelphia for three days with the seniors on a uh, uh, class trip end of this week, and, uh, you know, got to see all the great you know, early American stuff and stand where the, uh, the men were that, that signed our declaration and, and uh, the Constitution and so forth. It was good. It was a beautiful time. And got to go to the first uh, Supreme Court courthouse. And there you see something that we don't have now in our courthouses, which is the dock. You know, and there's a box right there. And the kids were asking, what's that? And we were asking around the, 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 uh, the guide, what is this? And and that's the dock. That's where the guilty person, you know, stands. And uh, I reminded them that C.S. Lewis has, you know, the essay entitled God in the Dock. You know, that what we tend to do as human beings, Lewis says, is put God in the dock. God, you have to answer for this. How dare you allow this suffering to happen? How dare you, God, do this to us? How dare you, God? You're going to have to answer. You give us an explanation for what we're doing out here in Babylon. Lewis says, we put God in the dock. That's how arrogant we are. And yet, isn't it amazing that at the end of the day, when you get to Calvary, there's God standing in the dock. Right? That actually God goes in the dock. This is how merciful he is. We want to throw him in the dock and start saying, now listen, we expect a few answers here. We, we're bringing charges against you. And then at the end, God graciously goes in the dock and accepts the charges that we deserve so that he can bear our guilt and die our death and deliver us. I mean, this is the kindness. That's the righteousness that belongs to him. To us, shame. Shame of face. Again, in verse 8, O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned. There is none of us who is righteous, no, not one. It's us, it's our kings, it's our leaders, it's all of us. But to you, Lord, belongs mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against you. Even in our rebellion, Lord, you continue to be gracious and merciful. I mean, the fact that you and I woke up, I mean, Eric challenged us this morning by saying it's a, it's a good day. You know, this is the day the Lord has made. We should rejoice and, and, and give thanks for it. And, and so I think uh, Nola said, every day is, every day we're alive is a good day. Yeah. Yeah. 
because you should be smote from the face of the earth, you and I both. How dare we even get up and breathe? We've rebelled against God. And yet, day after day after day, he is merciful and he is gracious. He continues, verse 10, back to the confession. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord to walk in his laws, which he set before us, uh, uh, before us by his servants. Yes, all of Israel has transgressed your law and departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us. Like, again, this, we're only getting what we deserve because we have not heeded the word of the Lord. Down in verse 14, therefore, the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he has done, though we have not obeyed his voice. So again, this just this beautiful back and forth. Lord, you are righteous. We are sinners. You are righteous. We are sinners. And now, O Lord, our God. Now here, again, beautifully here, we can see the connection with Moses tapping back into Lord reminding him of the mercies that he has done to his people. Lord, you are the God who does this. Would you do it again? And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned and done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because of our sins. Again, it would be just if you did it. But Lord, I'm asking you in your righteousness, and righteousness here means your, your covenant, your covenantal righteousness, right? You've, you've made promises, and Lord, I'm calling on those promises, and I'm asking you to turn your wrath away from us. Now, therefore, God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplication. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations, which, again, we brought on ourselves and the city, which is called by your name. Think about Moses, right? When, when, uh, God says, that's it, I'm going to destroy them. And he's going to say, no, 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 hey, Lord, these are your people. You called them out by your name out of Egypt. So, Lord, look on the city which is called by your name. We do not, I'm not coming before you presenting these supplications, these requests, because I'm righteous. I've already confessed that. I'm not asking to be heard because I'm righteous, but I'm coming only because of your great mercy. I acknowledge this. So, Lord, hear me. Oh, Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and act. Do not delay. Why? Not even. Daniel doesn't even say, Lord, because I really want this. <laughs> he says, do not delay for your name's sake, for your own sake. Lord, you made promises, and what an awesome and glorious thing it's going to be. You're going to receive glory when you keep those promises to your people. And I think of David. You know, David, when David sinned against the Lord, and we know that he, he kind of was numb to it. You know, he justified it. He hid it. And his bones rotted within him. And then Nathan came to him and confronted him, told him the little story about the, the lambs and the, the, you know, the, the visitor and so forth, and exposed his sin and gave him the unbelievably painful words, David, you are the man. David's first sin, uh, David's first um, word is, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. And he wrote Psalm 51 out of it. 
Like it mattered to David that he had dishonored the very nature and character of God. And then Nathan confirms that. Okay, you will not lose your kingdom, but because you have given the nations cause to blaspheme God, to speak badly about God, you are going to, there's going to be bloodshed in your kingdom. And Daniel, like David, cares about the nature and character of God. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Okay, so just on this first part of this text, I want to charge you and challenge you again, and myself included, to vibrant confession of sin, to acknowledging it while we acknowledge the very goodness of God, we acknowledge our own sin. And there's this, there's this feedback loop that goes back between the two of acknowledging the greatness of God while at the same time acknowledging my sin. The acknowledgement of my sin reveals the greatness of God, and the greatness of God just further exposes my sin. And so again, it's a feedback loop. And Daniel demonstrates that for us. Now, the second half of the text will require a little more time for us in Sunday school today, but we can nonetheless address it here. While Daniel is praying and he senses the end is here and he's hoping, oh Lord God, is now going to be the time in which we're restored, he gets a visitation from Gabriel. And Gabriel gives him this uh, visionary timeline. So we know what's going to happen. We Cyrus is going to decree an edict, and that's what he's going to say here. Hey, Daniel, even while you were praying, an edict has been decreed. Right now, why I say we could talk about this in Sunday school is because there, there's a radically different interpretation by this in, in a, the group called the Dispensationalists, who interpret this as uh, prophecy about the end times. I will tell you, I do not think that's what this is. This is a prophecy about the time between Daniel and the coming of Christ. And it concludes with the coming of Christ. And we'll, we'll just zip through that quickly and we can dive into greater detail in Sunday school. But hey, a decree has been given. Uh, Daniel, you're going to be able to go back. So, so the people are going to be able to be sent back. Even while Daniel's praying, this has, this has uh, come to be. But there's this delay in what you're hoping for. Yes, the people are going to be able to go back to Jerusalem, but there is going to be a delay. And Gabriel gives it to him that this restoration that now you're looking forward to, Daniel, is something that is going to happen over 77s, 70 weeks. And in this case, you got to remember that when you're dealing with visions and so forth, the numbers are symbolic. It doesn't mean they're a secret code. It just means they're symbolic. You have to be careful how literally you take the numbers that it's 77s, 70 weeks. It's like saying seven, what he's saying is like 70 weeks of years is, the, is really how it would be understood. And seven is the number of Sabbath. It's the number of Sabbath. And we can spend some time on this in Sunday school, that one of the problems of Israel, and this goes back into the book of Leviticus, is that if Israel does not keep Sabbath, if Israel does not, not only keep Sabbath on every Saturday, but if Israel does not maintain the Sabbath years, that every seven years they were to let the land rest, and every 49 years there was to be a year of jubilee in which they 
they uh, returned people's land back to them and forgave debts and so forth, that if you don't keep this whole order of Sabbath rest, then you yourself will not rest. God will find a way to let the land rest. He will let the land rest by taking you out of it. And that is exactly what happens. And that's what, and that's what uh, Daniel is saying. Lord, I acknowledge that this is what happened according to the law of Moses. We did not comply. We did not obey. We did not hear your word. We did not rest in you. And we are suffering the consequences. And so now that the 70 years is up, the decade, a, a decade of Sabbaths, if you will, 70, uh, uh, seven, seven times 10, uh, now that that is up, Daniel looks for the restoration, but he's told the restoration is going to come in this extended 70 times 7. And then he gives a breakdown of the 70 times 7. So in verse 24, 70 weeks are determined, 77, 70 times 7, are determined by your people for your holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins. So this is not quite over. It's over in one sense, and yet the full restoration is going to take time. Now, again, just to, to step out of the vision for a second, we know, we know that all of this is working as part of a story that is driving us toward Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the end of the exile. Jesus Christ is the end of the judgment. Jesus Christ is the end of their sins. That's when everything is paid for. They may not know that now. They're thinking, looking from their Old Testament perspective, they're thinking, hey, we just want to get out of this exile and get back to Jerusalem. But even their exile from Jerusalem was something that was meant to point the people of God to the coming of Christ. And that's what Daniel's talking, that's what Gabriel's talking about to Daniel. He's, hey, I know we want this to be over, and it is going to be over, but here's how it's going to be over. It's going to be in 70 times 7. Then we'll finish the transgression. We'll make an end of the sins. We'll make a reconciliation for iniquity and bring in everlasting righteousness to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So this 70 the 70 times 7 period is going to be broken up into three units. There's going to be a seven-week period, a 62-week period, and then a one-week period. Okay? Again, this is visionary letters. So don't, let's not try to say, okay, now wait a second. How, let me carry the one we've got. You know, just, you, you just see, okay, it's going to happen. There's going to have, something's going to happen quickly, seven weeks. Then there's going to be something that takes a long time to be fulfilled, 62 weeks, and then something that's going to happen quickly in one week. And I believe these three stages of what we have here is first, the people, you are going to be let go. And you're going to be let go by, by Osiris, and you're going to be able to go back, and under Zerubbabel, you are going to rebuild the temple, and the temple is going to be, quote-unquote, restored, rebuilt. The city walls are going to be rebuilt. There's going to be a, an end to the exile, and yet it won't really be the end. It won't really be the end. Not everybody's back. We're still under the judgment of God. The people begin the project, but they don't finish it. They're half-hearted about it. So it is a deliverance. Under Cyrus, the people are going to come back, but it's not really going to get done. But there is a deliverance in seven weeks. But it's going to be 62 weeks 
It's going to be a longer time until finally the promised one comes, namely Messiah. Until Messiah the Prince. Then, uh, then in troublesome times, even after 62 weeks, Messiah will come and will be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end it shall, uh, excuse me, and the end of it shall be with a flood till the end of the war of desolations are determined. The defense for this will have to be in Sunday school, but what I just to help us understand what is going on here, I think this is Gabriel's vision of okay, the coming of Messiah that comes much later, and he will come, and when he comes, he will be treated harshly. Even his own people will destroy the temple. Don't forget now, the temple is a picture of Christ. Christ himself said, You know, destroy this temple in three days, I'll rebuild it. And who destroyed the temple? Sure, the Romans but the Jews too. The Jews destroyed their own Emmanuel. They destroyed their own temple. They turned them over to the Romans to be destroyed. And so the Messiah came and his own people turned against him. And all of this ended with a flood. Again, not literally, but if you remember the story of Israel, of, uh, of Jesus, Jesus comes. He is uh, crucified, dead, and buried. He ascends to heaven, and then 30 years, uh, 30 years later, 40 years later in 70 AD, the Romans come in and literally destroy the city once again and flood through Jerusalem. And after the siege of Jerusalem, literally don't leave one stone standing upon another. So what happens, if you will, to the temple in Jesus then ends with the Romans coming in and doing the same thing to the temple of Jerusalem. So I think what, what Daniel is getting here in this visionary image, which again is not a photograph, right? We talked about that. Visions are not photographs. They don't tell you what is. They tell you the significance of what is. Daniel is seeing the restoration of the temple in Jerusalem, the coming Messiah, the crucifixion of the Lord, though he can't quite make it out, Right? It doesn't look like a crucifixion necessarily. It's just that the Messiah is hand, uh, treated terribly and that a flood of judgment comes into Israel. Chapter 20, uh, verse 27, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. And here I think we have with the many. Uh, the, the many is a, a word in Isaiah 53 for the people of God, the elect, Jew and Gentile. And Jesus now makes his covenant, not just with the Jews, but with many, right? Many nations, even in the Great Commission, go out into all nations. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, hence our 70 weeks, right? So we had six, uh, seven plus 62 is 69. So there's one week left. And this one week in which the final consummation comes, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is to be determined, is poured out on the desolate. So what we have here in this last week of the final consummation is uh, Jesus, the Messiah, making a covenant, bringing his covenant to many, right, to all nations. And in the middle of that one week, 
in the period between his death and resurrection and his second coming, some amazing desolation happens. And again, this, I believe, is the destruction of Jerusalem, where the Romans do come in and utterly destroy uh, in their abomination uh, the, the temple and the whole city of Jerusalem. Okay, so again, we could talk about the details of this, but let's just try to conclude. And all we're doing is telling a story we already know. Daniel knows the end is near, and he prays and confesses and says, Lord, as we approach the end of this, I just want to acknowledge on my behalf and on behalf of all my people that we have sinned against you and we deserve everything we get. Gabriel comes and says, Daniel, I just want to let you know, hey, you are being released. And here's what you should anticipate. You're being released, but that this release is not a release until final redemption, but that final redemption is going to be spread out over this visionary number of 70 times 7. Right, The full Sabbath is going to take time to develop. The full redemption and reconciliation of my people is going to take time to develop. Yes, you will return to the land and be able to rebuild the temple, but it will take some time before Messiah comes. And when Messiah does come, he will be treated harshly, he will be abused, and so forth. But through that, he will make a covenant with many and bring reconciliation and redemption to all his people. In the meantime, sacrifices will come to an end, as they do at, with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and, the, and essentially Judaism will, will end for all intents and purposes in that formal cultic way, cultic just meaning religious, way because the sacrifices are over for all intents and purposes it's done the temple is destroyed sacrifices are done and now he will make a covenant with many peoples and that will bring the end the redemption so daniel gets this vision of the rest of the story there on out a story that we know very well and the story that by god's grace we are in the middle of my charge to you as we wrap this up, and, and uh, they don't get easier. The next couple sermons okay, are going to be uh, difficult, so you're going to have to uh, bear with the text. It's, not, it's, not so, it's a difficult text to preach when you're talking about visions like this because you're getting in the weeds of uh, historical details. You're getting in the weeds of timelines. You're getting in the weeds of visionary interpretation. But I think it's important for us to remember this is God's Word. I'm not, I'm not writing this. I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying, now let me tell you how I think the best way to understand this is. And this is the word of the Lord that came to Daniel and through Daniel to us, and therefore it's worth the attention to think through. And why does God describe it the way he does? Why does God extend it the way he does? Right? Why not just bring Messiah right now? That's a good When I say right now, I mean right at the end of the 70 years. Why does he drag it out over the 400 and something years that he does? Almost 500 years that he does. These are good questions that are worth contemplating. So just be prepared for that as we go. So my charge to you, what, what your takeaway on this should be, is number one, confess your sins. Not only for yourself, but let us be praying for our nation. You know, Daniel said, you said this would happen, and it did happen. Shame on us. Well, you know what? Hey, we're part of that. Not, not just America. There's no direct words to America in the Bible. But as sons of Adam, there have been some pretty clear statements about what's going to happen when you abandon the Lord your God. And they are happening. He will turn them over, he says in Romans 1. And it's happening. And we ought to pray.
We ought to confess our sins personally, and we ought to be praying for our neighbors and for our countrymen as well in this. Confess our sins, acknowledge the greatness of God. And then finally, know that you are in a story that is right before God is a sea of glass. All the chaos that swirls around us is all part of a perfect, peaceful plan that God has for his people. And you're part of that. Dan, the story Daniel just got is a story that is being fulfilled, even through the sinfulness of Israel. And so we can rest confident in the providential plan of God for the redemption of his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you acknowledging that when we look at your word, oftentimes it is difficult to understand, especially when we're dealing with visions, Lord God. But nonetheless, what is clear is that you are a good and gracious God who loves your people. Even in exile, you do not forget your people. And Father, we acknowledge that we have been in exile, lo, these many years. But we thank you that in your kindness, in your generosity, in your compassion, in your faithfulness and righteousness, you do not forget your covenant with your people. And we thank you that you sent your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to stand in the dock while we were accusing you. You willingly went into the dock and bore all the reproaches that there, bearing our guilt, not your own, but bearing our guilt, Father, you redeemed us unto yourself. For this we give you thanks and praise. Lord, uh, restore, uh, refresh our hearts this morning that we might give you praise and glory. For we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.